0: This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, the play that would be a lot more exciting if the lovers weren't so dull, it's Romeo and Juliet.
1: Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona...
2: Juliet is the sun.
3: Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo?
2: Do you bite your thumb at us, sir? I do bite my thumb, sir. Do you bite your thumb at us?
4: then oh, I see Queen Mab have been with you. She is the fairy's midwife, and she comes in shape no bigger than an agate stone.
3: Happy dagger, this
2: is thy sheath. Ah! O oh, child, O oh, oh, child, my soul, and not my child, dead art For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. <laughs>
0: So in case you've been living under a rock for the last 50 years and have not actually seen a production of Romeo and Juliet, let's give you a summary. Don't worry, it'll be pretty short. How short? This is Romeo and Juliet in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is rotten in the city of Verona. The Montagues and Capulets are in a blood feud, and the prince declares that anyone caught fighting will be exiled. Romeo, a young Montague, crashes a party thrown by the Capulets in the hopes of seeing a girl he likes, and instead falls in love with Juliet, the Capulets' only daughter. The two fall in love and secretly wed, but not long after, a fight ensues in the street, and Mercutio, Romeo's best friend, is killed by Tybalt, Juliet's cousin. Romeo kills Tybalt in revenge and is exiled. Torn between her lover and her family, Juliet chooses Romeo. Juliet's parents, who know nothing of Juliet's marriage to Romeo, threaten to disown her if she doesn't marry the wealthy Paris. Juliet agrees to the marriage, but secretly takes a potion that makes her appear dead. A message explaining all this to Romeo never arrives, and Romeo, hearing Juliet is dead, visits her tomb. He encounters Paris, kills him, and then kills himself. Juliet wakes, finds Romeo's body, and kills herself. The parents arrive, see the bloodshed, and agree to end their feud. Despite popular opinion, there is nothing timeless about Romeo and Juliet, as anyone who has ever tried to modernize the story has learned. Romeo never gets the message that Juliet is only pretending to be dead, and thus we have our tale of woe. Now in the 15th century, we can blame the pesky messenger, but in a modern version, everyone is left wondering why she didn't just eliminate the middleman and send a text. Such is the danger of modernizing Shakespeare, especially when dealing with Romeo and Juliet, which, aside from being the world's most famous love story, is also one of the most meticulously plotted plays Shakespeare ever devised. His experience writing the comedy of errors must have served him well, for Romeo and Juliet is just as intricate, only without so many jokes. Now, you may be weeping during Romeo and Juliet because the lovers have gotten their stars crossed, but the tears in my eyes are because the play, from a structural standpoint, is a nearly perfect work of art. There is hardly a scene out of place. There's a popular idea among scholars that the first half of the play is a comedy, and it's only when Mercutio dies that the play takes on a serious tone. The notion was given widespread popularity in 1999 with the film Shakespeare in Love, that fictional version of how Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet. In that movie, young Shakespeare starts off writing a comedy, but his own tragic love life inspires him to change course. Shakespeare in Love is a great film, with a truly magnificent screenplay by Tom Stoppard. And Stoppard is a playwright who knew his Shakespeare inside and out, and he's a great deal of fun with Shakespeare in Love. And yet, despite all this, I don't buy for one minute that the play was ever intended to be a comedy. There are certainly comedic moments but you can find that in all of shakespeare's work and with the exception of mercutio the play is sorely lacking in the sort of clever dialogue or witty banter that you usually find in a twelfth night or even a midsummer night's dream right from the start shakespeare's tone is a serious one in the play's famous prologue he sets the scene and tells us right away how the story is going to end two households
1: both alike in dignity in fair verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents'
0: strife. The death of those star-crossed lovers isn't the point of Shakespeare's play, rather it's the way that that death will bury their parents' strife. Although it has gone down in history as a love story, I'd like to suggest that the love story is actually the least interesting part of Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet aren't exactly the greatest characters Shakespeare ever devised. Juliet has none of the wit of a Rosalind, and Romeo hardly has the introspection of a Hamlet or a Prince Hal. There's no particular reason why they fall in love with each other other than the fact that they are young, attracted to one another, and Shakespeare needed them to fall in love in order to further the plot. In As You Like It, Rosalind and Orlando spend the entire play in conversation, so when they declare their love at the end, we believe it's true but Romeo and Juliet spend all their time talking about how much they love each other. If they were at a dinner party, they'd be the couple everyone hates. Do Romeo and Juliet have any thoughts about the politics of Verona or the blood feud that has divided their family? If they do, they certainly aren't interested in sharing it with us. Hamlet has it in him to be tortured by existential angst, but Romeo's own depth never quite goes that far. From the moment he enters, he's a one-trick pony playing a single all too romantic note. Alas, that love whose view is muffled still should
4: without eyes see pathways to his will. Where shall we dine? Oh, me, what fray was here? Yet tell me not, for I have heard it all. is much to do with hate, but more with love. Why then, oh, brawling love, oh, loving hate, oh, anything of nothing first create, oh, heavy lightness, serious vanity, misshapen chaos of well-seeming forms, feather of lead, bright smoke, cold fire, sick elf, still waking sleep that is not what it is.
0: Juliet is no better. We don't even get a moment alone with her until Act 2, Scene 5, and there she, like Romeo, has only one thing on her mind.
3: The clock struck nine when i did send the nurse in half an hour she promised to return but she cannot meet him that's not so oh she is lame love's hells should be thoughts which ten times faster glides than the sun's beams driving back shadows over lowering hills
0: even so Romeo and juliet aren't as dull as say all those boring lovers in a midsummer night's dream There are a few things to recommend them. Romeo, of course, is a scoundrel when the play begins, pining over Rosalind until some other girl steps into his line of sight. The great joy of Romeo and Juliet is watching Romeo transform from the Don Juan to the most fateful lover in the history of love. The Romeo at the start of the play wouldn't have poisoned himself for love, although actors tend to play him to the contrary. Romeo transforms from a boy who is play-acting at being in love to a man who sacrifices himself at its feet. As for Juliet, her crowning moment occurs when she learns that Romeo, her husband, has killed Tybalt, her favorite cousin, and she must decide where her loyalties lie. "'Will you speak
3: well of him that killed your cousin?' "'Shall I speak ill of him
0: that is my husband?'
3: "'Oh, poor my lord, what tongue shall smooth thy name "'when I, thy three-hour's wife, have mangled it?' "'But wherefore, villain, didst thou kill my cousin?' "'That villain cousin would have killed my husband.' "'Back, foolish tears, back to your native spring. "'Your tributary drops belong to woe, "'which you mistaking offer up to joy.' My husband lives that Tybalt would have slain, and Tybalt's dead that would have slain my husband. All this is comfort, wherefore weep I then?
0: If Romeo's great test will occur in Juliet's tomb at the end of the play, Juliet's occurs now. She makes her choice. Told that she will be cast out if she refuses to marry Paris, Juliet doesn't waffle, she immediately packs a bag. Adults who give this play to young, impressionable minds should be warned that the play actually only encourages dissent. Teenagers, prone to side with Romeo and Juliet, will weep at the ending and curse the adults who caused all the pain. Adults, meanwhile, will probably secretly side with the parents and know that if anyone's to blame, it's Friar Lawrence and the nurse who should have known better than to enable Romeo and Juliet to carry on, as they did. Ultimately, though, I think Romeo and Juliet are just chess pieces. I don't think Shakespeare wanted Romeo and Juliet to be anything other than the walking personification of lust. Were they clever enough to be more interesting, they'd also be clever enough to get out of the predicament they're in. Rosalind is smart enough to escape to the Forest of Arden, but all Romeo and Juliet can do is pant with love and claw at each other's clothes. They don't exactly become worldly as the play goes on. Rosalind knows that men are April when they woo, December when they wed, but Romeo and Juliet both die believing that lovers are April all the time. They go to their grave believing in true love. It's not that I dislike Romeo and Juliet, I simply find that they themselves are disinteresting. I don't think Shakespeare was particularly interested in them either. If he had been, he'd have given them a lot more soliloquies. Look what he did for Antony and Cleopatra, who were just as star-crossed as Romeo and Juliet, and also came from two different households, both alike in dignity. Antony and Cleopatra start off their play exactly like Romeo and Juliet, but they are smart enough to examine how their hearts are affecting the world around them. Naive as they are, Romeo and Juliet are perfectly happy to be plot points in Shakespeare's story. Of all the plays he wrote thus far, only the comedy of errors is as obsessed with story as Romeo and Juliet. In the Comedy of Errors, each scene was placed in such a way as to propel the plot to its farcical conclusion. Here, Shakespeare does the same thing to create the opposite effect. In the prologue, Shakespeare promises us that the death of Romeo and Juliet will end their parents' feud. This is the question he wants us to consider, that this isn't a play about passion gone awry so much as it is about how a single love affair ended a civil war. Consider all the pieces that need to be in place for this to occur. Romeo and Juliet need to fall in love. That love needs to be forbidden. They need to be separated. Juliet needs a reason to fake her death. Romeo needs a reason to not know that the death has been faked. And their families need reasons to burst in on the tomb and find everyone dead. With the sole exception of a minor tangent involving the servant Peter and some musicians, almost certainly thrown in to allow some actor to do a costume change, every scene in Romeo and Juliet drives us closer to this resolution. Every character is designed to be the perfect person to propel a particular point in the plot. Mercutio, for all his fame, is another piece on Shakespeare's chessboard who is quietly nudged into his proper place. Shakespeare gives us little time to see Romeo and Mercutio together and to understand their fraternal bond which is what makes the Queen Mab speech so important. It's the longest scene with Mercutio and the best opportunity to showcase, not the actor playing him, but why Romeo is going to tilt towards rage when Mercutio dies. Mercutio is Romeo's antithesis. Romeo is the innocent, but Mercutio knows that whatever Romeo feels is only a temporary thing. The Queen Mab speech is both a showpiece and a warning. To Mercutio, no girl is worth dying for. And in this state,
4: she gallops night by night through lovers' brains, and then they dream of love. Or courtiers' knees that dream on curtsies straight. Or lawyers' fingers who straight dream on fees. Or ladies... who straight on kisses dream, which oft the angry mab with blisters plagues because their breaths with sweetmeats tainted are. Sometimes she gallops o'er a courtier's nose, and then dreams he of smelling out a suit. And sometimes comes she with a tithe pig's tail, tickling a parson's nose as he lies asleep. Then he dreams of another benefice. Sometimes she driveth o'er a soldier's neck, and then dreams he of cutting of foreign throats, of breeches, ambuscados, Spanish blades, of healths, five fathom deep, and then anon drums in his ear, at which he starts and wakes, and being thus frighted, swears a prayer or two, and sleeps again. <laughs> this is that very mab that plats the means of horses in the night.
0: If Mercutio weren't such a loudmouth, he'd have never gotten himself killed. If Friar Lawrence was a more responsible adult, he'd never have married Romeo to Juliet. And if the Montagues and Capulets weren't such devoted parents, they never have ended their feud upon finding their children dead. Parents don't get a lot of love in Shakespeare. Theatre thrives on conflict, and in almost every play, parents are either non-existent or are, in some manner, standing in the way. In The Taming of the Shrew, Shakespeare introduced us to Baptista, the worst father in the world who merrily sells off his daughter to the highest bidder without a single regret. Juliet's own father is, on the surface, a similar cad, but a closer look reveals that while he is a tyrant, he is at least a sympathetic one. Baptista seems happy to sell his daughter to whoever has enough cash, but Lord Capulet, at least when the play begins, is happy to let Juliet meet with Paris and see if she can learn to love him. It's only after Tybalt's death that he begins to rush matters.
2: Sir Paris,
1: I will make a desperate tender of my child's love. I think she will be ruled in all respects by me. Nay, more. I doubt it not. Wife, go you to her. ere you go to bed. Acquaint her here of my son Paris, love. And bid her mark you me on Wednesday next. But soft, what day is this? Monday, my lord. Monday. Ah. <laughs> well, Wednesday is too soon. A Thursday, let it be. A Thursday.
0: Tell her she shall be married to this noble earl why does capulet propel the wedding forward with such urgency provoked by tybalt's death he no doubt sees a marriage with paris as a means of offering his daughter protection the feud with the montagues now has a body count and capulet doesn't want to add juliet to the list both he and lady capulet may be strict parents but they truly love their daughter something which shakespeare takes great pains to illustrate Capulet is enraged when Juliet refuses to marry Paris, and while he calls her names and threatens to disown her if she disobeys, there's a subtle distinction that makes Capulet different from, say, Baptista in Taming of the Shrew. Lord Capulet wants Juliet to agree to marry Paris. Baptista doesn't seem to care one way or another about what his daughters want, but Capulet, for all his bluster and anger, still demands that Juliet enter the marriage of her own accord.
3: Here we need it not. You are too hard. God's bread makes me mad day night hour tide time work play alone in company still my care hath been to have her matched and having now provided a gentleman of noble parentage of fair demean youthful and nobly trained stuffed as they say with honorable parts proportioned as one's thought would wish a man And then to have a wretched, puling fool, a whining mammoth in her fortune's tender to answer, i am not wed, I cannot loathe, I am too (laughs) young, I pray you pardon me. But, and you will not wed, I'll pardon you. Grace where you will, you shall not house with me. Look to it, think on't.
0: Shakespeare also takes time to show us the Capulet's horror of finding Juliet after she has faked her death.
2: She's dead! She's dead! She's dead! Let me see her. Oh, alas, she's cold! Her blood is settled and her joints are stiff. Life and these lips have long been separated. Death lies on her like an untimely frost, among the sweetest flower oh, oh the field
0: <laughs> actors should never play this scene as anything other than sincere Juliet is her parents only daughter and their crime is loving her not wisely and far too well they arrange a tribute to Juliet as befits a princess
2: all things that we ordained at festival turn from their office to black funerals our instruments to melancholy bells, our wedding cheer to a sad burial feast, our solemn hymns to sullen dirges change, our bridal flowers serve for a buried course, and all things change them to the contrary.
0: As for Romeo's parents, they aren't given nearly as much stage time as they may deserve, but we do know that Romeo's mother dies of grief at hearing of her son's exile, and there's no reason to presume that Romeo's father did not care for Romeo as much as the Cabulets cared for Juliet. As soon as Montague is offered peace, he accepts it.
2: All are punished.
1: Oh, brother Montague, give me thy hand. This is my daughter's jointure. For no more can I demand,
2: but I can give thee more. For I will raise her statue in pure gold, that whilst Verona by that name is known, there shall no figure at such rate be set as that of true and faithful Juliet, as rich a Romeo's
1: by his lady's lie. Poor sacrifices of our enmity.
0: Most people are so distracted by the passion of Romeo and Juliet that they consider their parents little more than villains. In fact, the families are more important to this play than the lovers themselves. It is popular to call Romeo and Juliet a tragedy, but the astute observer will notice the ending is more in keeping with that of a fairy tale. On seeing the dead bodies of their children, the Montagues and Capulets vowed to stop the blood feud that has been tearing Verona apart. Logically, this strains credulity. Wouldn't the sight of two dead children be enough to make the blood feud even worse? Shakespeare's quasi-happy ending only works if, throughout the story, we take note of how much the families care for Romeo and Juliet. For a couple of families embroiled in a feud, they spend an awful lot of time concerned entirely over their children's love lives. There are no business deals, no political assignations, no affairs of their own to consume them. Significantly, Romeo and Juliet are both only children. Significantly, Romeo and Juliet are both the only children of their parents. They are the focus of their parents' entire lives. The story of Romeo and Juliet is that of romantic love versus familial love. At every step, Romeo and Juliet must continue to make the choice between their families and their hearts. And now comes the part of the show where I talk to you about filmed adaptations of the play I've discussed. By my count, Romeo and Juliet has been filmed more times than any other play in the canon, especially once you start counting up all the adaptations. And to be honest, anytime there's a pair of star-crossed lovers running around, you know the creators are more or less stepping on Shakespeare's shoes. Romeo and Juliet is such a popular play that while you can easily find a filmed version of a theatrical presentation, you also have a good chunk of actual movies to choose from. Given this, I'm not going to look at those filmed version of the stage performances, although there's a very good selection that I'll leave links to on the show page. If you've read Romeo and Juliet too many times and you really can't find it in yourself to watch it again, the only solution is Shakespeare in Love. As mentioned, this fictional take on how Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet has its own story, but also features plenty of scenes from the original play, allowing you to get highlights while still enjoying yourself. It's not much of an adaptation, more it's a bit of recommended additional reading. There is, of course, also a little musical called West Side Story, that famed show by Leonard Bernstein, Arthur Lorenz, and Stephen Sondheim.
4: When you're a jet, you're a jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day.
0: I feel pretty,
4: oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and bright.
0: Glorious as it is, the show removes the adults from the equation. There are no Lady Montagues or Mr. Capulets running around, and while that makes for a good West Side story, it makes for a poor adaptation. An adaptation in my mind should at least strive to capture the spirit of the original, and while West Side Story captures the naivete of the original Romeo and Juliet, it ignores Shakespeare's purpose in favor of its own. While I recommend West Side Story on its own merits, I don't recommend it if you are looking for a good adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Playwright Arthur Lorenz, who wrote the book, was also a social critic, and he's not interested in the fairy tale aspect of the play's original ending. His Juliet doesn't even die, and whether any of the deaths and the cycle of violence is anyone's guess. As a side note, I find West Side Story's popularity to be admirable, considering how dark the film actually is, especially when compared with the original play's bittersweet conclusion. The two most important film adaptations that are worth noting are the Franco Zeffirelli version from 1968, and the Baz Luhrmann version from 19. 1996. Each have something to recommend them, and yet both fail when it comes to the story's most important point. As I said, Shakespeare's purpose was to show the effect Romeo and Juliet's deaths had on their parents, but in both the Lerman and the Zeffirelli versions, the lines between the Montagues and Capulets at the end of the play are cut. As with West Side Story, death ends up serving no purpose. The tragedy becomes doubly tragic because it has no meaning. Now maybe this is how we want to see the story in the 20th and 21st centuries, but it's not how Shakespeare saw when he first wrote the play back in the 16th still both of them are solid film versions the Baz Luhrmann film which modernizes everything and features Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes is very high on style and this occasionally detracts from the text I give him points for the effort though modernizing Romeo and Juliet is a dicey issue but since Luhrmann was making the movie in the days before cell phones and email the adaptation doesn't strain credulity like other versions would do only ten years later But I'm going to recommend the Zeffirelli film, if only because its more traditional approach allows one to focus on Shakespeare's text. However, there have been countless other versions, and I have yet to see them all. I'm not entirely sure I'll ever bother, but if anyone out there has a version that's really knocked their socks off, please send me a comment, and I'll give it a watch. That's it for Romeo and Juliet. Next up, another famous romance in which the lovers are the least interesting thing on stage. It's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbard. If you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review it in the iTunes store. For more information about the things I've discussed, visit the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare And hey, while you're there, why not check out the other things I do with my time, including information about how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants, a book about two eight-foot-tall women who are struggling to live in a world that's too small to contain them. It's now available from St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbard. 11 plays down, 27 to go. Will Shakespeare has a play. Let's go and cough through it.